This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm pastor here. It's good to be with you all. Um, Having finished up Easter, we finished up a sermon series on Luke. Uh, And next week, we're going to be starting a sermon series on 1 and 2 Samuel that will take us all the way to Christmas. Um, But in between these themes of of sermon series, uh, we get to kind of explore different topics uh, that are close to our hearts. Uh, We get to investigate certain things that that touch home and that we all have questions about. Um, One of those things that we're going to do today is to talk about money. Now, I wonder if you have ever seriously reflected on what the Bible has to say about money, about our wealth, about riches that we pursue. Let me read just a few of them. Luke chapter 16 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Mark 8 says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Proverbs 11, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Ecclesiastes 5, which we just heard from in our Old Testament reading, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And perhaps most devastating is Mark 10, where we hear the story of the rich young ruler. If I can summarize it really quickly for us, this rich young ruler comes before Jesus to ask him a question and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law and the prophets, obey these commands. And he says, Lord, I've done all these from my youth. And he says, then one thing you lack, go sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler goes away sad because he has a great many possessions. So Jesus responds in Mark 10 and says this, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He continues, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I got to be honest, uh, it seems like the Bible advises against being wealthy at first glance, doesn't it? It says there's not a lot of good that can come from this. In fact, it looks like there's more dangers in wealth, money, and riches. They have a power over our souls. And we immediately feel shame about this. Because we know that all of us in this room are unbelievably wealthy. Now, of course, we can always point to the person down the street and say, of course, that's what true wealth looks like. But I'd venture to say that all of us are providing for our basic needs, and in fact, more so. We have enough wealth to make ourselves feel self-sufficient. We have wealth that we believe protects us from unforeseen future events, and we have wealth uh, that we prefer to hoard and keep for ourselves. So what are we supposed to do? Is it possible to be a faithful Christian and have riches? Is that a question you've ever asked yourself? What does the Bible ask us to do? Is it the only faithful act for a wealthy Christian is to sell all of our possessions and give to the poor like Jesus asked for the rich young ruler, or are there other instructions? Today in our passage, we'll see Paul a seasoned pastor instructing his young protege, Timothy, on how to pastor the wealthy. And there's something important here is that Paul assumes that there is going to be those who are rich in Timothy's church. 
And he says, there are some things that you're going to need to instruct them on because they're going to be particularly vulnerable to, to certain false teachings. All of us in this room are particularly vulnerable to those false teachings. There's a song by Chance the Rapper called Same Drugs. It's a somewhat somber song about falling out of love with his girlfriend. And in it, Chance makes an analogy between falling out of love with his partner as not taking the same drugs anymore. Really, it's like him saying that we've come off this high and we've realized that was fake, synthetic, manufactured. There was no real substance there. And now I'm waking up and I'm not sure I feel any better, but I know that that wasn't real. I thought that this highlighted something very important for our discussion today. Money, wealth, and riches are a drug. A drug which we've been taking for so long that we don't realize uh, that the world that we're living in isn't real. It's manufactured, it's synthetic, it's promised to give us some sort of life, some extravagant life that ends up being empty. See, our culture, uh, or maybe many of us can experience with chance this idea of kind of um, um, waking up from a season of infatuation with a boyfriend or girlfriend, right? Um, And we can resonate with some of those feelings that he's describing, where uh, we recognize that it was all fake. But our culture does a very good job of hiding the seams of um, the, the untruth of our wealth. Our culture reinforces in our own hearts time and time again that wealth will finally give us that life we've always been looking for. Paul's telling Timothy they won't find it there. They can no longer keep taking these drugs. They need to sober up. Paul gives Timothy three areas to focus on for the wealthy to sober up. And I think from these three areas, we too, all of us in this room, can learn how we need to sober up to our own wealth and learn how to truly live. These three areas that must change are our self-image. We must apprehend a new reality, the new reality that has come. And we must invest in this new reality deeply. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting halfway through verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of God given that we might avoid irreverent babble and contradictions and take hold of that which is truly life. May the Holy Spirit bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're trying to wean ourselves off of this um, drug-induced diet of, of wealth and riches. And the first thing that we're going to see that needs to change is our self image. In verse 7, it says this, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. We actually saw echoes of this in Ecclesiastes as well in our Old Testament passage. Now, uh, I think we throw this phrase around often. Um, I know, uh, you know that my dad would often give me these, these phrases, uh, and maybe we tell it to each other as, as we think and worry about uh, various investments and decisions that we're, we're trying to do. But I think maybe one way to address this passage, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out, is that it's challenging our own self-perception. What Paul is telling Timothy to instruct the wealthy about, all of us in this room, myself included, is to challenge their idea that they made their own wealth. That there is such a thing as a self-made man or woman. Although the Bible talks about God honoring, seeing, and in fact often even rewarding hard work, the Bible leaves zero room for a self-made man or woman. In fact, this is part of the drug that we keep taking because when we believe that we've earned it, we believe that it's owed to us, that we brought something into this world that we deserve to take out. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and it is, in fact, his right to do with you and your wealth as he pleases. And you, in reality, have very little say over it. Now, where this shows up often in my own life is how I like to tell my own story of my life as some sort of underdog story, right? Uh, We all like these stories. We see them on television and movies, business leaders, politicians, rappers, um, just our own self-talk. We've all heard the stories of entrepreneurs who grew up with immigrant parents, poverty-stricken. They hit the pavement, knocked on doors, and they manifested themselves. We all like to believe that we had the hard knock life, from Orphan Annie to Jay-Z and Drake, who started from the bottom and is now here. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
We like to believe in this American story that if you put in the work, you will find success. And so we like to believe that the Bible affirms that same thing. And to the extent that you believe that story, you're believing a different doctrine than that which accords with Jesus Christ. The doctrine that accords with Jesus Christ is that you brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out. You are called to work hard as unto the Lord because you belong to him, not because he owes you anything. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and it is in fact his right to do with you and your wealth as he pleases. And to say it again, you in reality have very little say over it. You can keep taking that drug if you like, this idea that if you put in enough work that you should get some material things out. It seems that the wealthy um, in 1 Timothy also um, believed the same thing. And that's why Paul says in verse 9, but for those who desire to be rich, they fall into a temptation and a snare and to make senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through these cravings that some have wandered away from the faith and, and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's why near the end of the passage, Paul will give these instructions to Timothy concerning the rich. And he says, as for the rich, he will say, charge them not to be haughty. Most literally, haughty means arrogant. Believing oneself to be more superior than they are. The key problem with the self-made, self-talk stories that we tell ourselves is that we belittle God's graciousness to us in the process. It's why Paul describes God as the one who gives life to all things in verse 13. In fact, you didn't even bring your life into the world. You were brought into the world with nothing, and you will take nothing out. God is the one who gives life. In order to sober up from our own wealth, we have to die to our own arrogance, correct our own view of ourselves, that we were given all that we have, our hard work ethic included as well as our wealth. Neither are owed and neither are self-made. All graciousness goes to God. There's another point uh, besides our own self-image that needs to change as we sober up to our own wealth, and that's that we must apprehend a new reality. You see, we thought that our drug-induced diet um, gave us a world that was real. Um, we thought that that was the most extravagant, the best things that we could ever have. But I think that if we were honest with ourselves, we could find the cracks in the stories, right? We could find the seams where it shows that it's not actually real, where the wealth and that vacation or, or that particular thing that you've been longing after for so often, when you finally got it and tasted it, it faded away, right? It just wasn't quite as fulfilling as we thought it might be. It didn't quite check all of those boxes that we wanted to to where we could finally be at peace. We have to apprehend a new reality. You see, what I find is actually uh, this life in this drug-induced world uh, is often rife with anxieties and apprehensions. Now, there was a point in my not-so-distant past uh, where my wife and I, uh, with Joaquin already being born, filed our federal income taxes for $15,000 in one year. Um, I'm not trying to tell an underdog story here, so don't, don't get it twisted. Um, this is about the anxieties that, that lived there. Although I do love to tell that underdog story. It just, it's just, it's there. 
You might say many of my anxieties at this time were characterized by fulfilling basic necessities. I had an apprehension of how close we were to free fall without a lot of financial safety nets. Now, a few years later, with more stable work and a few more financial safety nets, my apprehensions and anxieties haven't ceased. Instead of being characterized by basic necessities, now my anxieties concerning my wealth, um, concerned by making the best moves. Um, the way that I want to describe this is actually, it's concerned with making my life superlative. Now, um, this word came to me, but I actually had to go look it up, what it meant again, because I kind of forgot what superlatives were. And maybe you English people, like, remember. Um, but there's, like, standard adjectives. That's, like, good, right? It's good. Uh, and then there's comparative adjectives, which is better. It's better than something else. And then there's the superlative, which is the best. I want to make my life superlative. I'm, I like to make temporal things and make them eternal. I don't want to just provide faithfully for my kids. I want to provide the best thing for my kids. I don't want to find a product with quality, but the highest quality. Not just reliable, but the longest lasting. I want the most bang for my buck. Did you notice all the superlatives? Can you identify in your own life where you're looking for superlatives? We're looking for the best possible outcome, and anything less than that would be failure. We might just focus on a few examples. Do you find yourself apprehensive about the future that you're providing for your children? Trying to provide for them the best paths that they may have uh, to live in a culture that is ever-changing in a world that is dynamic. What other superlatives might, might we be looking for? The best body, the best lifestyle, the best life truly lived on a Caribbean island, the best investments, the best curated social media feed. I think the way that we can identify what we want the best of in our lives is what we spend the most of our time thinking about. And not just thinking, but apprehensively, anxiously thinking. I know where this shows up in my own life as we've been looking for a house in the past year and I've been watching the market becoming increasingly difficult and interest rates rising, I find myself apprehensive. <laughs> it consuming my thoughts about what the best option is going to be for my family. We, as the wealthy, must stop trying to anticipate, apprehend, and discern how to make ourselves superlative, and we must reform and refocus our lives to a new reality where there is only one who is superlative. Look at verse 17. We have to stop setting our hopes on the uncertainty of riches because we're trying to find in the riches something that they can't actually provide we're trying, to provide, we're trying to find inside of the riches something superlative for ourselves. In order to apprehend this new reality, we have to ap apprehend that there is only one superlative one, and there, he is everything. What's fascinating about this is how Paul goes about this, right? He's talking about, you know, there's these false teachers, um, and, and, you know, people are led astray by them, and at first you're like, oh, man, there's just some, like, wicked doctrine out there that must be bad. And he goes, no, the problem is that they think that they're godliness. They think that they can follow the laws in Scripture and that they're going to get material blessings out of it. And it's so incisive. It's so, um, so destructive that they don't even realize that they're walking into it. And so many have been led astray. And he's in the middle telling them, well, what good things can we do? In verses um, 12, I think, I'm in following, he's starting to list all these good things that, that, that he can do. And in the middle of it, he goes, but these aren't the best things. Do you know what the best thing is? 
It is he, verse 15, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's like Paul got distracted partway through his letter. He's like, here's a bunch of good things that you can do instead than you should do. And then all of a sudden, do you know who the best thing is? It's Jesus. What does it look like for us to be, to discern this new reality of him being superlative above all? Well, classically, we've called it worship. Not just what we're doing here, but that in every aspect of our lives, we overflow in worship to the truly superlative one. That all of our apprehensions and anxieties can be given to him. I wonder what it would look like if you really discerned the reality that Jesus Christ loves your children more than you can. What would that worship look like? How would that change how you pray for them? How you faithfully anticipate and plead with the Lord to show them the path to navigate through the rapidly changing culture and world? What would it look like if I viewed my house not simply as a financial decision, apprehensive about every move of the market, or if I could view it as a gift of God to be used in faithful service of him and his kingdom no matter what he gives me? What would it look like if Jesus Christ gave you that money to faithfully invest in order to multiply it and grow it, not so that you can keep it, but actually just to give it all away? Because you're good at turning money into more money. Seeing Christ as superlative, as the best thing to pursue, allows us to see every other thing, every other good and proper gift, even our own wealth and our children in its proper place. Gifts given to us to steward, gifts that we'll probably misuse, gifts that are ultimately compared to Jesus might be good, but definitely not the best thing. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about casting aside rationality to make silly investments um, or carefree and reckless decisions, and I hope you see that. Um, For instance, for parents to be reckless with their children's safety because they're like, well, you know, I mean, the Lord sees them wherever they are, and he cares more for them. I don't really need to keep tabs on them. Um, That would be a neglect of the duties given to them by God, and I, I hope we could all see that. And actually, this is reinforced again, even as investors In Matthew 25, uh, Jesus tells this parable of this um, owner that's got a lot of money, and he gives it to to a a bunch of servants that are supposed to invest it while he's gone. And he returns from his trip, um, and one servant's buried it in the ground. And he goes, you stupid servant. Why didn't you at least put it in a savings account so it earned marginal interest? We're not talking about foolish investments. But we are talking about recognizing the superlative nature of Jesus himself, that all of the good gifts must be oriented underneath him, directed in light of his rule and reign. Recognizing the superlative power of Jesus allows us to lay our anxieties and apprehensions at his feet in faithfulness. It allows us to stop trying to find rest in the uncertainty of riches and the volatility of the market. And in the middle of our good and honorable work, it allows us at some points to just overflow with praise that God has a relationship with us and it is more valuable than whatever we're getting out of the job that we've got right now. To overflow in worship of him in random and unexpected places and in the middle of a letter where then Paul has to go back and be, so as for the rich. 
Like, oh man, Jesus is so great. He goes, oh yeah, what was that? Oh yeah, but ask for the rich. We the wealthy must stop trying to anticipate, apprehend, and discerning how to make ourselves superlative. And we must reform and refocus our lives on the superlativeness of Christ day after day to apprehend the new reality that we have woken up into from leaving our drug-induced wealth stupor. But there's one more step to weaning ourselves off of the drug of our wealth, and that concerns our investing into this new reality. Because we can't simply apprehend a new reality and just be like, oh, that's nice, and continue to live as if we lived over in this other world. No. Jesus says you've now been rescued out. Now you have to invest fully in this new reality. We have a duty and a calling and a yearning to see how our gifts, whatever they may be, uh, might be multiplied by the superlative one. Here's how Paul describes this to Timothy when he charges at the end of the passage, right? We're starting in verse 18 when he's charging the rich uh, what they're supposed to do. It says that they're supposed to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, on a first note here, before we go any further, um, we invest in things because we think that they're going to truly give us life. Uh, we think they're going to be profitable. They're going to allow us to do the things that we want to do um, because they're worthwhile investing in because they're going to make the world a better place. Um, we believe that these things are going to actually produce more life into the world. Uh, that's why we do them, even according to the old world standards. But now this new reality, this new reality of Jesus being the most superlative one calls us to invest in order to truly live. These things never gave us the life that we were quite looking for. They always left us a little bit empty. These things set up a sure foundation that cannot be shaken. Truly living in the new reality is measured by different things. And so what are these things? Um, we can summarize kind of verse 18 um, in two separate things. First, doing good and then being generous. We'll start with doing good. You can see that list of doing good in 12 through 14 when Paul gets interrupted. And there's many places that we could go throughout Scripture to see what doing good is. But instead of doing all of that, uh, I just wanted to highlight a verse actually from Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 says this, do not grow weary in doing good. I have a feeling that most of us probably don't have a problem identifying what the good is that we're supposed to be doing. What we struggle with more is that we are weary of doing it. We see our competitors gain some sort of advance, advancement, and we resent our doing good because it feels like we're not tasting the reward here and now. Do not grow weary. Ask God to show you the good foundation that is being stored up later. Now, a second aspect of what we're called to do to invest in this new reality is, is to be generous. Uh, notice that it doesn't say just do acts of generosity, uh, but to be generous. Now, I think if we were to understand that distinction between just simply um, doing generous things versus a person that is generous, it would answer a lot of our questions that we tend to have about generosity. However, I want to enter into those questions anyway. Um, one of the questions that I ask of myself uh, and that I've been asked numerous times um, is how much should I give? whether it's to the church or away to others. And you know, for a couple thousand years, we've kind of used that adage of 10%, right? But you might say that 10% is kind of a minimum. 
right? Everybody's supposed to do 10%. Maybe uh, the wealthy are supposed to be marked by a special kind of generosity. And he actually kind of describes this, Paul does to Timothy as he's writing to him. Um, he says that they should be generous and ready to share. I've met some people who are exceedingly generous in the amount of money that they can give, but they're not necessarily ready to share. They almost have to be coerced into it. And it seems like as their life advances, they're increasingly hanging uh, no, no soliciting signs around in their heart. Maybe they're growing weary of doing good. Again, I'm not saying that you should throw rationality out of the window and invest in anybody who knocks on your door. There's a judiciousness, but the question that you really need to ask of your heart is, are you ready to share? And I think that the way that we identify that most is, could we say that we are looking for ways to be generous? Or do we look for ways to avoid generosity? We might be able to extend this question a little bit more, um, which is how much is enough? Um, we've got these ideas of, you know, well, if you can achieve the uh, FIRE standards, you know, financial independence, retire early, um, then, then like you've done it. So it's like you've done there, then you can just stop working and you should be out and you shouldn't take any more because you're like a drain on the resources or destroying whatever. Um, but the Bible doesn't really speak that way. The Bible actually talks about you maybe even working even harder in your field, but in order to give even more of that away. Maybe you do have enough to live on for the rest of your life many times over. We're still called to give away. Being generous might mean actually continuing to do that which God has called you to be good at, to continue to be a profitable investor, lawyer, artist, professional athlete, or whatever, but to increasingly give more of those proceeds away because you're like, I don't need any more. I'm good at what God has called me to do, and it brings me joy that God has called me to do it. But it also brings me joy to invest in these other things, to look for ways to give it away. It's astonishing to see people who have finally found something that is worth giving their lives to and how passionately they can pursue it. This sort of generosity and this sort of uh, doing good, it, you can see it on their faces. It, it's truly living. It weans us off the drug-induced false reality that material wealth deceives us of again and again. Because it might mean that you play less golf, that you see less of the world, that you might go to Disney less, that retirement might be more frugal. It might mean that you live on the sidelines and never in the spotlight. It may mean that your followers dwindle. But you know what? For all the life that you're supposedly missing out on, the Bible says that life all existed in a make-believe world that had no substance that was synthetic and whose pleasures always faded. Do you want to know where life truly lives? It lives with the superlative one. Allow me to summarize and close with this. This whole passage, and it's long, and there's lots of um, interesting tangents that Paul's kind of taking, right? But it says that there's some false teachers who are out of accord with the only one who has true life. And the problem is, is that they co-opt the words of the life-giving one, and they make it seem like life, but they've actually turned it into something else, and it's slowly killing you. This false life is a claim that godliness results in material gain. And these false teachers are selling a drug that is so powerful and so potent 
that many of us have bowed our lives down to it again and again and continually pierced ourselves with pangs. But when we see Jesus show us what life truly is, we for a moment are shaken out of our strung out stupors and we see something greater. We see a life itself more fulfilling and more expansive than we ever could have imagined. And we start realizing that this world was way too narrow, that we thought the end all was the financial um, end gain and the bottom line. And Jesus says, my pockets are bottomless. There is no investment that I cannot fulfill. I'm investing in you. And in fact, I did so with my very life. You have been rescued from this world. Stop taking the drugs of it. This life that he set before us, more fulfilling and more expansive, in verse 12, he, call, he has called us into it. He shows us what living eternally really looks like. And he says, not only is it out there for you, only if you do X, Y, and Z perfectly, only if you um, uh, check all these boxes, um, only if you change your self-perception, um, only if you per perceive my kingdom in the way that it's coming in the world, and only if you invest in it properly will you receive this, inherit, uh, this eternal life. He says, no, this eternal life is already yours. I already paid for it. I already made the investment, and it will not fail to come to fruition because I am the eternal, the sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. You're playing with pocket change. He's called us to live into this eternal reality here and now, to lay down those old drugs and truly live. For those to whom Jesus has given money, he has given these instructions to make sure that you continue to pursue the true life worth living, to change your self-image, to apprehend the new reality and the new world order that is at play, and to invest in it deeply. Brothers and sisters, we have come to know Jesus Christ as the life-giving one. The question is, can we hear these calls to live into this true life now and lay behind the old life? to sober up from our drug-induced diet that has been force-fed to us since we were born and find a life worth living. Now, um, sobering up often feels worse, right? Um, it can feel like you're living in just a world of ecstasy, right? And coming off of it, you realize that it's all fake back there, but I actually feel worse. Uh, and you know, uh, this supper is actually one of these examples because I'm sure that all of us have had way better meals than this table. You're about to get like a little cracker and a little thimble of wine, okay? And it's not very good wine. Uh, and although we make the bread in-house, it's, it's not the best bread that there is, right? We're not professionals here. We serve each other. You have had better meals. It seems that uh, this would be the fake thing and that the other things would be more real. But what 1 Timothy is saying today is that those things are actually the fake thing. And this thing is the most real. That here, where we have dinner with the superlative one himself, that although it's just a token now, it's laying a foundation for the future that will be better than we could possibly imagine. Not because we're meriting anything here. This, this entire table is a symbol of Christ meriting everything. 
and inviting us to come take hold of life, to see his body broken for you, to see his blood shed for you, to take and eat and take and drink. The sacrament was instituted by Christ the night that Jesus was betrayed, and he took the bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I, ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. If you're committed to sobering up from your wealth by the power of the Holy Spirit, to recognize the superlative one for who he really is, this table is for you. If you're not convinced that Jesus is actually more superlative, uh, that if he is not the best, he might be good, he might even be better than some, but he's not the best, um, I'd ask you to refrain from this table, to not declare something with your outward actions that is not an inward reality. In a moment, I will pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, and we can go to these tables on my right and my left where we can partake of this bread. Um, and this wine. There are gluten-free options available. Uh, just notify your server if you need that. Uh, there's red wine and clear grape juice. I'd ask to please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make these simple elements more real to us than the fanciest wines and the nicest dinners. May we taste in them true life. Be reminded of the superlative greatness of being called into eternal life by Jesus Christ himself. And we ask this in his name. Amen.